This is the Get Healthy 360 podcast, where we discuss topics related to your physical, mental, psychological, and spiritual health. Your host is Dr. Chris Ferguson, board certified in anesthesiology and pain management. This podcast is for informational purposes only, and you should consult your primary healthcare provider before making any decisions related to your health. And here's your host, Dr. Chris Ferguson. Oh, one more thing before we start. If you like this episode, please consider rating us five stars. We would really appreciate it. Thanks very much. Hello, and welcome to Get Healthy 360. We have with us Dr. Kelly Cockett, MD, MS, FACCP. She's an assistant professor of medicine and board certified in critical care medicine and infectious diseases. She's an assistant professor of medicine and an associate director of infection control. She holds national positions with the Infectious Disease Society of America, the Society for Healthcare Epidemiology of America, also the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Dr. Kakat is also a physician member of the UNMC Biocontainment Unit. So said another way, Dr. Kakat um, is an expert in infectious disease, and we're talking today about the coronavirus. She's an expert in critical care medicine because that's where people go when they are really sick. And she's also an expert in disease containment. So that's also why she's on this podcast. So Dr. Kaka, thank you very much for taking the time for this podcast. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation. I appreciate it. And we were talking a bit offline. So the disclosure that you were giving was that there's still a lot being learned about this virus. And as things unfold, more information will be provided. So let's start from the, the basics for people without a strong biology background of this is what we're going to talk about. What is a virus? How does a virus work? What is a coronavirus? And what are the impacts of this virus? And what can people do about it? Any can, and then can address concerns, etc. Okay, perfect. So maybe if I can start with just the basic idea of what it means to have a virus and a virus infection, and how that impacts us as humans. When we think about infectious diseases, there are several types of what we call pathogens or microorganisms, small organisms that we often can't see by the human eye that can get into the human body and they make us sick. Bacteria are what most think of when we talk about infections because bacteria are what we give antibiotics for. When we frequently talk about pneumonia, or we talk about a urinary tract infection or bladder infection or something more severe like meningitis, we are frequently referring to bacterial infections that we can cure with antibiotics. Viruses are a different type of pathogen or microorganism that we can't see that still can get into the body through various ways and kind of set up shop and cause damage and infection and inflammation in our bodies that cause different symptoms, including fevers or a pneumonia triggered by the virus. The piece that makes viruses more difficult is that most viruses don't have a specific medicine that we can use to treat and kill the virus like we can with antibiotics and bacteria. When we get a virus, specifically thinking about coronavirus that we're talking about today. These viruses are often acquired through our eyes or our nose or our mouth. 
And often that is through droplets in the air from people coughing or sneezing around us, or even from us touching areas that the virus has landed on and getting it on our hands. Our eyes, nose, and mouth are particularly susceptible because if you think about it, these are tissues of our body that are what we call mucous membranes. They're more wet. They cause our saliva or our tears or our runny nose. And in that setting, these type of tissues also are thinner and they're more permeable, meaning that these viruses have an easier time getting through that protective layer of skin and into our body, as opposed to just having them on the, the thicker skin and callous skin of our hands. Once the virus gets into our system, that is where it really starts to move in, take up shop, and cause that inflammation that causes fever. In many ways, these viruses attack the cells that make up our lungs or the airway or even the area around our nose, and they can actually kill some of the cells or permanently damage or change them so that they don't function in a normal way. And when these areas stop functioning normally, that's when we start to see the different symptoms. Again, the fever, a cough, shortness of breath, pain, or if the virus happens to attack, attack our stomach and intestines, you may have symptoms like nausea, vomiting, or diarrhea. That, that's a phenomenal explanation about the differences between viruses and bacteria. One of the best I've ever heard. So thank you for that. Now, well, thank a, you. as a quick side note, there is a, a meme or a little picture going around on social media of a Lysol bottle saying that Lysol can kill coronaviruses. So there's a conspiracy theory saying that coronaviruses have been a long time or Lysol knew about it. So how is it possible that Lysol would have on its bottle that it can kill coronaviruses when it seems like this is a new virus? That is another great question. So you're right to a point in the fact that Lysol appears ahead of the curve because they're advertising that they can kill coronavirus. But the truth is, they've actually known that they can. Coronavirus infections are not new to humans. We've had several coronaviruses in existence that we have had and are, have been well recognized for many, many years. And they frequently cause symptoms that most of us brush off as the common cold. And with those mild symptoms, we don't get tested, the virus isn't identified, and the general public rarely hears about having a specific infection like coronavirus. Now, there are other types of coronaviruses that have been much more severe that in general we've heard about. And that's when we had the SARS epidemic or the MERS epidemic. And both of those viruses are also coronaviruses. And probably the best way to explain this in general would be to, see, be to say that these coronaviruses are all related, but in some ways they're like brothers and sisters or perhaps distant cousins. None of them are identical. They all may behave a little differently. And this is where you see that change in severity and recognition of these viruses. That is a great explanation. Thank you for that. So just to summarize, so coronaviruses are a family of viruses that have been a long time. The specific coronavirus that 
is causing havoc right now is a subtype of coronaviruses. That is correct. It's, and I don't even know if I would truly say subtype is the right word, just for clarity. It's a specific coronavirus, but their DNA, well, not DNA, their RNA makeup, the genetic makeup is different from each one of those. So much akin to the idea of the human race, you know, we wouldn't say that, you know, my cousin is a subtype of a human, that would be totally inappropriate, right? But they're related, that we're similar, but we're not identical. And I think that's probably a better corollary for explanation than the idea and phrase specifically of subtype. So it would be a like a, a relative? Yes, I think that is okay. what I would describe this as just for the general public from an understanding standpoint, is that these are all viruses that are related to each other. They're all in the coronavirus family, but they are distinct in some of the specific attributes that make them up, which is what changes how severe the disease may be and how easily it may be passed from person to person. And then some quick background. Um, so this coronavirus started in China, and for and for political reasons, they picked the name coronavirus. So that way, they weren't, um, from my understanding, that way they they weren't instituting prejudices on certain groups of people because of the name, etc. But for to jump right into the practical reasons, the reason that people are concerned, it, or maybe you should discuss this. Why are people concerned at this point, and why why is there this big to do about this coronavirus at this time? Sure. So I'll step back for a moment. So you're absolutely right. And I do think that the naming of the virus was actually a fairly big deal in the media. And you're 100% right in the fact that we didn't want to name this the Wuhan virus, because it's not a problem of the people in that area of China. And we certainly don't want to stigmatize any group of people, any geographic area you know, in any scenario, because arguably this could have happened in another part of the world, and we don't want to cause increased fear for any particular type of person that will be longstanding. We've seen that with other diseases and scenarios and time. So it's very important to not name things after a group of people or an area, but to give it the correct scientific name. And that's what you're seeing come out now with the COVID-19 as the infection and the SARS-CoV-2 as the more scientific name of the actual virus itself. Your second question that you asked was, why is everybody so worked up about this? And if you follow the media, you'll see a lot of information about coronavirus, and there's a lot of comparisons happening to influenza, of which we've seen more cases in the United States, and currently we've seen more deaths from in the United States this year. And we're still in the midst of our influenza season with a second peak of increasing cases. You also see comparisons to SARS and to MERS with this virus. One of the reasons this virus is getting so much attention right now is that it is brand new. It has never been described in humans before, which means we have no known innate immunity to this meaning none of us out there in the world, to our knowledge, have been exposed to this virus before, which means arguably everyone in the world could ultimately be infected. There are viruses that don't tend to spread as quickly, and one infected person doesn't tend to spread it to as many people. 
in those scenarios, the virus might infect a smaller number of people and then kind of dissipate over time. Right now, what we've seen over the last several weeks is this virus appears to be highly infectious with constantly increasing numbers of people in China and around the globe at this point, demonstrating symptoms and testing positive for the infection. And if we have an entire country being infected, like you've seen on the news in China, it does certainly cause strains to our healthcare system, the world of business when you have people getting ill, it tends to cause a lot of concern for what happens if that happens here, how does that impact me, how does that impact my family? And so on a global level, there's larger impact potential for more people getting sick and continuous spread. And as you bring that down closer to home, you're looking at financial implications and as we've seen lately, stock market implications. You're looking at access to healthcare, you're looking at people's capacity to continue to work in their current companies. And subsequently, if companies can't manufacture or work and create their products and services, the potential deficit that and need that will ensue in this type of a situation. And I think that's really why there's so much concern about this. Of course, in addition, there's concern about the number of people that ultimately can die from this infection. It is certainly not the highest risk for death infection that we've seen, but it does have a percentage of people who will die from this infection, again, which we've seen that count rising as numbers come in day by day. So to clarify what you said, because this is a new virus, it's unclear what the mortality rate would be. I think it initially was very unclear. When you look at some of the most recent data, and again, keeping in mind that this is fluid, more information is coming in all the time, the percentage of people who are dying from this infection appears overall to be somewhere between 1%. There's been variations with some reports being somewhat higher, some being lower, but that does seem to be where the majority of numbers are coming out in the more recent reports. So concerns that people have is, or are, at what point should people start thinking twice about going to work? So I think that's a great question. Right now, I don't think, particularly in the United States, we're not there yet. We don't have clear, documented, widespread infection in the community. As we see more community spread, which, again, as the CDC has warned earlier this week, um, is believed to be inevitable, once there are people at a given workplace that you work closely with that have had infection, I do think that we're going to see people not going to work for that risk of infection, but I also think we're going to see companies coming up with contingency plans and how to manage those scenarios if people become symptomatic and encouraging people to stay home, get tested, be evaluated, and not put their other colleagues at risk. So right out of the gate, I wouldn't necessarily say you shouldn't go to work. I think it's important for all of us to continue to contribute to the best of our ability for the good of everyone in our communities. 
If we all just stay at home, we are not going to be able to continue to work collectively and collaboratively through what could be a very difficult time in the coming weeks. But I think when you have close contacts and they've been more ill, and if your company doesn't have that contingency plan, I think you need to talk to your human resources and have that discussion of what are you recommending? What is our plan to try to keep our employees safe? And how do we manage that? Some companies have already talked more about remote work options, more Zoom style meetings or online digital meetings, conference calls, all of those types of continued workflows. So I think it just depends on the company and the status of which you have close contact with others and what the company's contingency plan is going to be. But I would not encourage people to start proactively staying at home out of fear until we have clearly more widespread community outbreak. And even then, we have to have contingency plans to continue to move forward for all of us. So, and correct me if I misspeak on this next question. There seems to be an incubation period of one to two weeks. So what that means is you may have the virus, but it's not active, but you're just carrying it. So you may be a carrier for one to two weeks. And again, correct me on that time frame if I'm misspeaking, during which some infected people, could they be contagious? And how many, is there any sort of estimate as to how many undiagnosed cases or do they have? That is a very good question also. Um, the incubation period certainly is in the realm of up to two weeks. There's some reports that could be as few as a couple days, meaning two to five days. Um, but within 14 days is, in general, what we're looking at for a person under investigation for this novel coronavirus. And with, go, oh, ahead. go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, actually, if you could repeat the second part of your question, I think I can answer that, and then we can move to the next piece. Oh, so, and at what stage of the outbreak, at how many undiagnosed cases are there for every one confirmed case? So, it's hard because it depends on how long any one patient's been um, potentially shutting the virus, right? So, if you've had the virus for one or two days, the number of people you have had the opportunity to spread that virus to is smaller than someone who's been sick for at least 14. So that can be difficult. What they do use in these type of outbreaks is something called the r naught, which is a estimation of for every one person who's ill, how many more people do we think are going to get infected in general? Certainly it's an imperfect number, but most estimates right now are saying for every one person infected, we will likely see two to three additional infections. So anytime that number is over one, we expect the infection to continue to spread. When it's under one, we kind of expect the infection to fizzle out because it's not quite as contagious and it doesn't tend to spread to as many people. In regards to can you be shedding virus and not have symptoms. You absolutely can, and that is part of what has made this hard to screen for and hard to contain. Initially, we were looking for people with symptoms, which makes sense because how do you tell a healthy person with no symptoms from a healthy person who is shedding the virus 
it's very hard to understand that difference. But now as we've done more testing for close contacts of people with known infection, they have found active virus replication or virus growing and shedding in people who have had no symptoms whatsoever. This is not necessarily something that is entirely new to this coronavirus. This is certainly something we have seen with other viruses. But again, the concern about having people who don't have symptoms who can spread the virus is that there's no way to signal a danger of those particular people compared to someone who's coughing and sneezing. And what would you say is the best way to protect yourself? I know a lot of people are walking around with masks. So this is a two-part question. What are the best ways to protect yourself? And are these masks that people are buying effective? Great question. So one, how do you protect yourself? As I mentioned previously, we can have the virus on our hands and touch our eyes, nose, and mouth. So washing your hands and using hand sanitizer are critical to preventing infection and frankly are the mainstay to preventing any type of infection. But will be very important for this also because if your hands have virus on them and you touch your eyes, you are eating without having washed your hands first, you run the risk of transmitting the virus from your hands into your eyes or mouth and getting infection through that standpoint. In addition, you know, for people who are coughing and sneezing, again, always using that good etiquette of coughing into, you know, uh, tissue. Ideally, if you can cough very tightly into your elbow as opposed to, you know, several feet away to try to stop kind of that aerosol spray that tends to come out of our mouth and nose and cover, again, you know, one way or another covering your mouth and nose if you cough and sneeze are important to help prevent spread of infection. And if you are doing that yourself, again, you know, great hand hygiene and hand sanitizer. Cleaning your household surfaces that are high touch areas um, with disinfectants and even just with soap and water to some level will help decrease those risks. Um, as far as the masks go, it becomes a little more difficult. I've already told you that you certainly could get this, you know, transmitted even just through um, exposure to your eye. Most people are not covering their eyes when they're wearing those masks. So it doesn't negate the capacity to get it. And if your hands are contaminated and you take the mask off and you still touch your mouth or nose, the mask did you no good. The masks are helpful to um, prevent when we cough or sneeze to get that aerosol out to everyone else. But in a virus like this, whether or not those masks will provide any meaningful prevention is unclear and certainly is suspect to some level. From a hospital standpoint, most of us are not using that type of a mask if we have patients that have this virus of concern. We're using higher level masks that have more filtration and are tighter fitted that we are specifically fitted for to try to prevent the infection. So long story short, wash your hands frequently and often, use good cough etiquette, and if you are it has the capacity that people around you who are coughing and sneezing, keeping some distance, social distance from that is not an unreasonable thing to do when you're able to do so. Good hygiene around the house with cleaning is important. And then does the mask help you? 
I'm not entirely convinced that it's going to prevent getting an infection. And it certainly may deplete the store of the masks we need around the country and around the globe if everyone starts trying to accumulate them and store them for the times that we need them unrelated to coronavirus. So I, I have firsthand um, knowledge. Um, friends of mine, they have close relatives that are in China. And China, I don't know if anyone listening is aware of this, but they're on lockdown. So they have to stay in their apartment for days at a time. They're, they're allowed to go mm-hmm. to the grocery store, but they're on lockdown. Is this consistent with what you know as well? That is fairly consistent with what we have heard also, yes. There's been, um, I think some have phrased it more politically as a mandatory holiday with confinement um, to try to prevent ongoing spread of the virus. That is another way to say it. They have mandatory stay-at-home mental rest days. Yeah. That is <laughs> indeterminate at this time when it will be over. Correct. So at what point... Do you think it's instituted there? Can you for and if you can't forecast, that's fine. But could you forecast what people should really look to avoid? Say, riding the subway, taking airplanes, um, going to large amusement parks, etc. That is something that, if we're specifically talking about the United States or other countries that have had lower numbers of confirmed cases. It is very hard to forecast out a point at which those items are no longer going to be recommended. The question probably comes into play more so when there's a documented widespread infection with confirmed cases in any given community, as far as if you've not been sick, potentially starting to have more intentional social distancing. But again, the difficulty with that is if you have widespread infection and we know some people have asymptomatic exposure, none of us will necessarily know if we are the person that was asymptomatic and if that social distancing even matters anymore. And so I think it's very hard to make a forecast about whether or not there will be formal recommendations for that level of avoidance of more public places, but certainly not before there's clear widespread community outbreaks in a given area. So the message that you're giving is right now, what I'm hearing is really one of reassurance. And what I'm also hearing is that you may very well be an asymptomatic carrier and this virus may not even affect you. Correct. I think it's very hard currently to know who is going to be in that group of people that are asymptomatic. And if everyone else in your community is starting to get it, where you're seeing those rates of, you know, 20, 30, 40% of the community is potentially showing symptoms or having spreading infection, it'll become very difficult to know if in the last two weeks, any one of us had been exposed and got the virus, but didn't get symptoms. And that I think is what, makes it a little more difficult to truly say that it's easy to recommend social distancing until you get sick, because the reality is you might not. So let's say that you were on an airplane 
And there were some yeah. people that you think highly with a high degree of certainty were, were sick. They may have just had a regular flu or they may have who knows what. If you are concerned that you have this virus or say you have children or pretend you have children, what steps would you take if you or a child, I don't know, I, I don't know if there's a difference, what steps would you take if, if you're suspecting that you ha- you're, you've been exposed or you have the virus? So if I thought I had the virus and I do have two kids or I thought my children might have a viral illness, I would not, I would start to quarantine at home with them in the scenario that I have known widespread outbreak. And then I would call in to my clinic or my county health department and say, these are the symptoms I have. What would you like me to do? That ultimately, I think every county, every hospital, and every clinic is going to have variations on what that process is going to look like. But if you're in an area, certainly where people are sick, and even with influenza, we already recommend if you're, you have a fever, you're sick with influenza, we don't want you to go to school. We don't want your kids going to daycare. We don't recommend that you as an adult are going to work because you can spread the virus to those people. So I think being very cautious of staying home if you're ill to prevent spreading, whether it's influenza or whether it is this novel coronavirus, is still gonna be important and consistent with the recommendations we've heard before. I mean, jokingly, many of us who have smaller kids kind of have referred to that as somewhat of our daycare rules, right? If you had influenza, you stay home until you're fever-free and your symptoms have improved or whatever the rule is at your work. The difference that we're seeing now with this new virus is that we don't know entirely when people stop shedding the virus and how long that period of time is to stay. If you test positive, you should stay quarantined at home and try to prevent spreading the viral infection. That is something that is still fluid and in motion and we're gaining more information on essentially on a daily basis. And I think more specific information and instructions will be coming out in the days to weeks to follow on how long someone with known COVID-19 infection will have to stay away from work or from school. And on a, on a practical level that you deal with on a, on a daily basis. So there was the diamond cruise ship off the coast of Japan and the virus ended up infecting over 600 people um, when they were kept in isolation in their cabins. Um, can you comment on, on that situation? I can. I, but I will say that I can comment with speculation and I can comment with the caveat that that was a very difficult situation with a new virus that we know more about now than when that cruise ship scenario started. So and I you, certainly do not. I'm sorry to, to interrupt, but can you give some background into the, the cruise ship and, and just explain how it played out and the implications then versus what we know now? Sure. So the um, Diamond Princess cruise ship was a cruise ship that was um, stopped off the coast of Japan after the outbreak had really started to have increasing recognition and realization that it was more infective and spreading to more and more people. And there were certainly travelers on the cruise ship that were felt to be high risk for infection, 
with some patients or some, and some people on the cruise ship having some symptoms suggestive of infection. In the setting of not entirely knowing how quickly it was spreading, whether it could be contained on land, and how likely it was to spread from one person to another, or even having people who were asymptomatic with the virus, the intent, I think, from the group which I, that was making the decision in that scenario, which, again, I do not envy any of them because I think these were incredibly hard decisions, was that if we kept people isolated in their rooms, we would prevent, likely be able to prevent more spread on the ship and not bring more infected people into an area in which we're trying to already contain the virus. Unfortunately, in that situation, many of the patients ultimately were exposed, many tested positive, and the isolation to cabins was not an effective strategy. When a new virus emerges like this, that information is just not information that was clearly in full, readily available at all the detail we have now. So hindsight now, looking at this situation, is very different than when it was first identified as an area of concern. The question too, how did so many people get infected on this ship? I think there's a lot of factors that can play into that. One, let's be honest, it's really hard to confine people on a cruise ship to a room and ensure that they actually stay in their rooms. Two, these people still needed to have food delivered and other things delivered. So in that midst, there's still people moving throughout the ship. If you have asymptomatic carriers at all, again, the risk of virus spread is not benign. And you have an incubation period of up to 14 days. And so people could have been exposed early on and in close cabin quarters, people who might be sneaking to visit their friends next door when nobody's looking, you know, things that most of us would do more than likely if we were stuck on a ship at some point thinking that it's okay because none of us are sick may have actually been some of the activities that could have potentially led to that. But again, I wasn't on the ship. I certainly can't say that I have firsthand knowledge, but I think all of those scenarios are plausible. And I think there's multiple factors that led to why so many of those patients ultimately um, became infected and why patients were evacuated. Let's, I'm going to ask you to put on your other hat now, your, your critical care hat. So for anyone mm-hmm. who isn't familiar with this, someone who does critical care mean, means that when, some, when you think of someone in the hospital with, with tubes in them and they're possibly intubated, meaning they have a, a tube down their throat and that's helping them breathe, and you're really supporting their, their basic life support functions, you're the doctor that does that. Yes, I am one of the doctors that does that. That is correct. One of, very sure. Yes, you're one of the doctors that do that, but that is also your specialty. So let's let's sit, go from the scenario now. Let's move from someone's an asymptomatic carrier or they're not really affected to more the worst case scenario where someone gets really sick. Can you describe what that looks like and what their care would look like from your standpoint? Sure. So for perspective, I'm very fortunate. I work at University of Nebraska Medical Center, and we have one of the biocontainment centers that took care of patients with Ebola. We have had faculty who are multidisciplinary from the physician side, 
in infectious diseases to critical care physicians to nursing staff to respiratory therapists and many more who have been drilling and training people and providing education and doing ongoing research to make sure that if we have highly infectious diseases like Ebola, like MERS, like this new coronavirus, that our team has always been ready to take care of patients, including the ones that are most severely ill. Currently, for my institution, at the moment, if we had someone who became severely ill with coronavirus, they would be in our intensive care unit level care, but within the biocontainment center at the moment. And that means that we have a lot of extra precautions on the personal protective gear that we wear to prevent our healthcare workers from getting infection and to make sure that we can provide the care they need in which we might have higher risk of getting infection like, as you mentioned, putting a, do, a tube down someone's throat to intubate them and have them on a ventilator and life support for breathing, which is one of the clear concerns with this infection. In general, if someone has a really bad in viral infection that causes lung problems, which is one of the primary concerns with this infection, our biggest concerns start to become, can you breathe well enough to maintain that oxygen that the rest of your body needs to survive. And just like many other infections, including influenza, if the infection is severe enough, your lungs capacity to get enough oxygen into your blood, into the rest of your body becomes increasingly limited, increasingly limited. And you may need more and more of those life support measures. You may need the machine to help you breathe and get much higher levels of oxygen to your lungs. You may need more support for your blood pressure in that setting to keep your blood pressure up if you're getting really ill. You could ultimately, in the worst case scenarios, we may see patients who have other organs that start to suffer because of the low oxygen levels that can evolve and need life support measures in the forms of continuous dialysis or other support measures. Um, in some of the worst case scenarios and including descriptions of doing this with this novel coronavirus, we've had patients who have been on ECMO, which for those of you listening, is very much like the machines that we use as a heart-lung bypass machine in the operating rooms, but we use those in the intensive units to help do what the heart and or lungs can't do for a period of time by taking the blood and running it through a machine to help provide that oxygen and that pump support if the heart's also struggling to try and keep our patients alive through that critical portion of illness in hopes that if we can get you through this critical part of the illness, we will start to see recovery. We can start decreasing the amount of support you need and work towards liberating you from the life support genes and tubes that could be used in those worst case scenarios. So to summarize what you, so what I'm, what I'm hearing, the gist of everything that you just said was that while this coronavirus is a lot more widespread in say Asia or other European countries, right now we're not seeing a massive outbreak in the US. So really the message I'm hearing is one of reassurance. And even if someone were to get sick, the odds of it killing them really are very small. 
And even if they were critically ill, they're experts like yourself who have a whole host of skill sets like ECMO, like you, like you discussed, and ventilators and dialysis machines, et cetera, that can really take care of those critically ill patients. Yes, I think that's absolutely true in your summary. And again, I do think the only thing I would say is that reassurance is cautious reassurance based on the information and the number of confirmed cases that we have today. We may see that change rapidly in the United States, just like we saw it changing rapidly in Italy, but I can't forecast what we'll see tomorrow. Well, there's there's the fog of war, and then there's the fog of medicine, where you could only forecast the best you can at a given time. Mm-hmm. So any other closing thoughts that you have, if I may have missed anything or anything you wish people would have known that I didn't ask? Sure. So I think one is that I do think it's okay for people to have that edge of concern and fear regarding the virus to the point that this is new. There's unexpected change that could happen if we see widespread outbreaks, but that there are ways that all of us are working to prepare in the medical field and that there's ways that people can prepare at home with making sure if you had to be in a worst case scenario, quarantined at home for two weeks, waiting to see if you tested positive, or if in fact you did test positive for but from that asymptomatic carrier or mild disease standpoint, you know, prepare for the idea of do you have those basic necessities? I don't think people need to start going out and buying tons of groceries and hoarding things. I think that's the wrong thing to do. But do you have your prescription medicine? Do you have enough basic hygiene products? And would you have, you know, 14 to 21 days of food in your home, if at all possible, to store should these things happen, especially if you start to see more and more cases in your local community? I think it is important for everyone to know that you should pay attention to the news and what's happening with this so you're aware of what's happening around you, again, because things are changing quickly. And I think it's really important for everyone to know that in our medicine community, we're working really hard to find ways to treat and prevent this infection. And although we may not have a medicine available immediately to share widely, we already have ongoing trials here in Nebraska. We've already started enrolling patients for one of the medications to try and see if it will help with coronavirus infections. Studies regarding development of vaccines are underway. Again, they're not going to be available early on in this outbreak. It shouldn't evolve in the next several weeks here in the United States. But we're working towards those as fast as we can to try and help support our patients, our families, our friends. Because at the end of the day, all of us, even from the healthcare side, are patients too. And we want to do our best to get through this in the most effective ways we can for all of our communities. Well, Dr. Cockut, I'm sure you're very intensely busy at this time. And I know you're, I'm sure you're on the phone answering a thousand phone calls a day, along with dealing with, with the critical care unit and the biocontainment unit and infectious disease things that you do. So I really do appreciate the time that you've taken for this podcast. And I, I really do appreciate um, the information that you gave. It was presented in a very understandable manner. So again, thank you. 
Absolutely. Thank you so much. And I hope that it helped answer some questions for your listeners that are out there. And we will have all of our um, social media contacts bio on the podcast. So if you are updating your social media, people can find it there. Yes, absolutely. The, I do update and I'm fairly active on social media, particularly on the platform of Twitter, both personally, but also from our institutional aspect. We are doing our best to continue to share high quality, accurate scientific information regarding coronavirus, the updates and ongoing evolution of medications, treatment management and other scenarios as needed. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a comment on the Get Healthy 360 Facebook page and consider subscribing to this podcast. Thanks.